You know, I've been in ministry for about 30 um, years now, and in that time, I've had the opportunity to perform a number of, uh, of funerals. Now, now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that it's a pastor's job uh, to, to, to do funerals, to bury, or for that matter, marry people, but the responsibility seems to have fallen our way. Now, marrying people is kind of fun, but I would not actually call funerals particularly fun. In fact, my, my first funeral, I, I, I shared it with, these, with you some time ago, came while I was working in a kitchen in Colorado Springs. You see, I'd put myself through school working in a restaurant, and, and, and cooking also supported us in the early days of our, our ministry. Uh, by the way, I, you should know that I have since forgotten everything that I know about cooking, and no, my cooking did not kill somebody. <laughs> um, but, but, but actually, that first funeral was an 18-year-old suicide, and from what I could tell, a non-believer. That was not particularly fun. I mean, what do you say to the family to offer comfort and hope? I remember thinking at that time, well, they can only get better from, from here. And, and through the years, I've done many more funerals of all types, of believers and unbelievers, expected, unexpected, tragic, premature, celebratory, mournful, young, old, men, women, boys, girls, open casket, closed casket, memorials, funerals, burials, cremations. And in fact, it occurred to me as I thought about that this, this week that the only constant when I do a funeral is the deceased stays dead. And so funerals are not particularly fun. But you know, there are some exceptions to that. You see, when D.L. Moody, the great 19th century evangelist, had to do his first funeral, he decided to look through the gospel narratives to see how Jesus handled them, you know, to see what words of comfort uh, he offered to grieving people. And do you know what he found? Every time Jesus attended a funeral, he broke it up. He was a funeral basher. He, he would say to the, the hired mourners, you get out of here, and to the dead uh, person, you get up. Now, you remember once he, he, he stopped a funeral procession, a widow's son ha- had died. Now, that, that, that's important, you see. Uh, with, with no husband, she was a widow, and now no son to take care of her. She had no means of support. She grieved not only the loss of her son, but her 401k program a- a- as well. So Jesus stopped the procession and said to the dead boy, get up, and in essence, take care of your mom. And we've heard that story before, but will you let it sink in for just a moment? A, a line of cars is on its way to a graveside funeral. Let's say, let's say Mount Lawn Cemetery, right over by the high school. Most of us know uh, uh, where that is. Uh, lights are on. Police are in front. We are still a small enough community for that to happen. Everyone pulls over in respect. Well, everyone except one person who stops the motorcade, goes over to the hearse, opens the back door, lifts the coffin, and says, get up. And, and you scoff, and yet Jesus did that all the time. There was that time that Lazarus died. Jesus had, had heard his friend Lazarus in, in Bethany was sick, but he waited for several extra days just to let him die. At this time, Jesus shows up four days after the funeral. Je- Lazarus is lying in the tomb. And as the King James says, surely he stinketh by now. 
And then Jesus says, remove the stone. And then he said, Lazarus, get out of there. Get up. And out comes, I like to see it, out comes Lazarus in his funeral attire. And then we have this story before us this morning. It's a, it's a great story of resurrection. I couldn't wait to get to it. Let me remind you where we are in our study. We've been in the book of Mark for, for some time now. Some of you are wondering if we will be in Mark as long as Matthew. Duh, no, there are 28 chapters in Matthew and only 16 in Mark. Now, now it's Mark's purpose to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. From the very first chapter, Jesus has been doing some rather amazing miracles, you know, things like casting out demons and healing sick people of every imaginable, imaginable disease. He'd also given some, some amazing teaching, and well, he even performed some of those uh, miracles on the Sabbath, infuriating the religious establishment, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees who, who soon sought to destroy him as early as Mark chapter 3. Well, well then we got to chapter 4, and Jesus upped the ante. He started performing even greater miracles. He was demonstrating his power over, over nature and, and demons and, and the debilitating disease we'll see and even death. You remember, he, he started by calming that hurricane-sized storm, and, and the disciples asked, what kind of man is this? That's the question we've been asking and seeking the answer. Then he drove out a, a legion of demons from this naked, disfigured, violent, crazy guys. And the, the, those demons who, by the way, answered the, the question of the disciples, you are the son of the most high God. Well, well that brings us to our text this morning. He, he is actually going to raise someone from the dead. It's a picture, you see, of, of what he will do in the future for everyone of his followers. We've been asking that question with the disciples, what kind of man is this? I want you this morning to be impressed again and to believe. In fact, I would have you see Jesus this morning. The story before us is a great one. It's actually the second of Mark's famous sandwich narratives. You'll remember Mark will start a story and then interrupt it to tell another story before he finishes the first story. Now, usually those two stories have related themes or truths, and we'll see that that is the case here, but we're going to wait till next week. Here, the interruption also gives opportunity for this little girl to die just so Jesus can wreck another funeral. So there are actually two miracles here. Well, we're just going to look at the outside of the sandwich, if, if you will, the, the start and the finish of the story. Next week, we'll look at the middle of the story. The, the, we'll look at the, at the interruption, and, and, and we'll see why it's there, because you see there are some significantly related themes. But, but for today, let's Let's read that first story, starting in Mark chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21, read through verse 24, and then we're going to drop down to verse 35 and go to the end of the chapter. So look with me at Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up. Now stop right there. A synagogue official, that is a Jewish religious leader, going to come up and what? 
He came up and on seeing him, fell at his feet. Are you kidding me? And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And so Jesus went off with him, and, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And th th that brings us to the next story that we're going to say for next week. So let's look at the rest of this story, verse 35. And while he was still speaking, finishing up that other story, they, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And, and they came to the house of the synagogue official, and, and he saw commotion and, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And, and entering in, he said to them... Why make a commotion to weep? The, the child has not died, but is asleep. <laughs> they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, Peter, James, and John, and he entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old, and, and immediately they were completely astounded, astonished with great astonishment, literally. And he gave them strict orders that, that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. This is an incredible, this is an amazing story. We're simply going to work our way through it by by meeting the different characters of the story. First, we're going to meet the, the sick girl's father. We find, in fact, that his name is Jairus. This is highly unusual. Usually, those who receive some healing from Jesus, they're not named. But Jairus is because, you see, he's important. Everybody knows Jairus. The only other person named is Bartimaeus, I think, in, Mark, in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter nine. So we're, so we're going to meet the sick girl's father, and then we're going to meet the now dead girl. <laughs> In verses 35 and following, from sick girl to dead girl. Uh, we get a little of the background as we look at that first point. Jesus and his disciples uh, crossed the Sea of Galilee again. We remember that they had been on the east side uh, in, in Gentile territory, the Decapolis, where he had cast out the legion of demons, and, and, and now they go back to the west side. Now, Mark doesn't tell us where they landed, but if you compare this with the parallel account in, in Matthew, um, they were very likely, in fact, I think they were at Capernaum. And they're still at the seashore a few hundred yards away from town center because a large crowd had gathered, and as usual, they were pressing in around him. But soon we read a synagogue official named Jairus approached Jesus, drumroll, you expect some type of opposition, and fell at his feet. What? Until this time, we've only seen lepers and, and sick people and demon-possessed people, the dregs of society bowing before him. Now we've got this synagogue ruler. This is a Jewish religious Leader, this is more than significant. This is shocking. Now, there are several things that we need to notice here. First, from a religious perspective, this man was one of the top dogs uh, in Capernaum. 
You see, he was in charge of, uh, of the synagogue, uh, the, the, all the facilities there, of its administration, uh, of the worship services, all, all the programs of the synagogue. It was his responsibility to put together the worship services to include the scripture reading and then the teaching. He, would, he didn't do the teaching, but he would select the rabbis or the scribes that were going to do that. He would make sure prayers were offered, and he would make sure that everything was orthodox, according to Jewish tradition. Some argue that the wording here is such that, such that he was the chief elder, the chief ruler among the other elders. This guy was in charge, and he was most probably a Pharisee. And if this was indeed Capernaum, I think that it was, Jairus had not only seen Jesus perform miracles, he had probably been part of that religious leadership that was opposing Jesus. You remember back in chapter 3 when Jesus had healed that man with the withered hand on the Sabbath in the synagogue? <laughs> the Pharisees left the synagogue and conspired to kill him. Jairus would have been among them. See, the opposition against Jesus from the religious establishment had begun to mount significantly. They were opposing him every time he turned around, trying to catch him with, with trick questions. They were, they were questioning why he hung out with sinners. We saw that. They were questioning why he did what he did on the Sabbath. They, they, they suggested that he was empowered by Satan. The resistance is getting intense. The Pharisees were, were plotting how they could get rid of Jesus, how they could kill him. So again, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, he had no doubt been part of this conspiracy. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, Jesus was an annoyance. More than that, he was public enemy number one. He needed to be dealt with. That is, that is, unless you find in all of your arrogant self-sufficiency something doesn't work right. Something is broken. And suddenly, you become desperate. And suddenly, you begin to realize that this Jesus that you have been opposing might just be your only hope. Oh, how that is my hope for some of you who dismiss Jesus and oppose Jesus, who treat him flippantly. My sincere prayer, genuine sincere prayer, is that you will get to a point of desperation where life is not working and you begin to realize Jesus is your only hope. This is where Jairus was. His 12-year-old daughter was sick. The text doesn't say, but he had likely exhausted all of his possible resources. He had done everything that he could do. But his little girl was dying. Anybody here have a 12-year-old daughter or had a 12-year-old daughter? Jairus had a little girl just like yours, and, and she was sick. In fact, she was as good as dead. The wording is such that she was at death's door, labored, breathing. One said that she was beyond intensive care. She was at the end of hospice care. She wasn't just sick in the words of Princess Bride. She was mostly dead. Jairus is desperate. He is at the end of his rope. I 
all the religious hypocrisy, all those ceremonial washings, all that condescension and self-religious pride, all the empty prayers and all the seeming orthodoxy for which he was responsible, nothing was going to help his daughter now. So all of a sudden, it did not matter who saw him come to Jesus. It did not matter if the crowd saw him. It did not matter if his fellow Pharisees saw him. He was desperate. He was broken. So he came just like the leper, just like the paralytic, just like that demon-possessed guy. He came the only way that you can come to Jesus, broken, pleading, bowing. Jesus, you are my only hope. You see, it does not matter who you are. You only come to Jesus one way. It doesn't matter if you are a leper, if you are one of the dregs of society. It does not matter if you are seen as the most religious person around. You all come to Jesus the same way. You're all I've got. You're my last hope. So as this guy approached Jesus, the crowd would have become silent, shocked, isn't that, isn't that Jairus? And then they watch as he falls to his feet and begins imploring Jesus earnestly. He's pleading. He's begging. My little daughter is at the point of death. Any moment she will breathe her last. Please, I'm begging you, come lay your hand on her so she will get well and she will live. He's desperate. It's exactly where Jesus needs you to be before he will do anything about your condition. I want you to notice there, there is faith there. It's, it's, it, it's, it, it's little faith. It needs to grow so much so that Jesus will allow his daughter to die. But, but there is faith. Doesn't matter how little yours is. God will take what little you have, and he'll work great faith in you. So he goes with Jairus. While this large crowd, like traffic on a Boone Friday, was pressing in around him, impeding his progress. It gets worse. There is another person in that crowd who needs his attention. And Jesus actually stops to help her. And then we're going to look at that next week, but can you imagine Jairus' frustration at this point? Jesus, I've known this lady for years. She's been dealing with this for like, well, 12 years. You can come back to her. She's still going to be sick. But, but my daughter, she's as good as dead. Let's go. Jesus need, Jairus needed his faith enlarged, so Jesus allowed the detour so that things could get worse. I wonder if that could be true for you. What is Jesus trying to teach you? How is he trying to enlarge your faith in the middle of your crisis? Skipping the interruption, look down at verse 35. That brings us to our second point as... He was finishing his encounter with this woman, this interruption. 
some people, you see, came from the house of the synagogue ruler. Put yourself in Jairus' sandals. He, he sees them coming. He, he knows who they are. He knows where they're coming from. And he sees the look on their faces. And they say the words that he desperately does not want to hear. Your daughter. Luke tells us it's his only daughter. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? It's over. It's too late. And see Jairus falling to the ground in agonizing despair. As far as the bearers of bad news and Jairus were concerned, there was nothing left for Jesus to do. Not even the teacher could help. Will you let that settle in just for a moment? Would you think for a moment of some of the funerals that you have attended? Will you think for a moment of the loved ones that you have buried? Agonizing. Hopeless. Thankfully, Jairus' story, your story, does not end here. Remember, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the author of life. He overhears what is heard. Actually, he already knew because he, it, he had orchestrated it. It was part of his plan. It's interesting, the word overhearing could actually be translated ignoring. In fact, it probably should be both. Overhearing and ignoring what they had to say, he says to Jairus. Don't be afraid. Literally, stop. Stop being afraid. Believe. You had enough faith, Jairus, to come to me to heal your daughter. Do you still have enough faith to believe that I can still heal your daughter? Do you? The whole event was designed to increase Jairus' faith. He had believed Jesus could do something about a major illness. Would he believe Jesus for resurrection? Do you? Mark doesn't tell us, but apparently Jairus did. Because the next thing that we see is, Jairus, is Jesus continued to Jairus' house along with Peter, James, and John. This, they were three of the first four that he had called to be his disciples. It's the first indication that they were going to be part of some inner circle. When they got to the house, the funeral was already in full swing. They did things quickly. You have to understand um, uh, what funerals were like back then in Palestine. If we attend a funeral today we, and we want to show our respect, we are quiet. Everyone is, is reverent. When I, we do a funeral in here and I lead the family in from back there, everyone just is quiet. You can hear a pin drop. Everybody stands up. Uh, you pull over. If a funeral passes by, even if you don't know the person, I even subconsciously reach up and turn my radio down. Silence, you see, is how we show respect in our culture, not so here. It was the opposite in Israel. Back then, much like in Middle Eastern funerals today, People were loud. In fact, they were supposed to be loud. 
They were supposed to be, there was supposed to be disorder and chaos. It was a picture of how you felt, you see, all torn up inside. In, in fact, there were certain things that you did to make sure that there was order and, and chaos and appropriate grief. First, to express your grief, you tore your clothes. You did that. And not just any old way. There were 39 rules to observe as to how you tore your clothes. For, for example, you tore them standing up. If you were the, the, the mother or the father, you tore your hole right over your heart. If it was a family member or a close friend, you tore the hole close to the heart. So now people looking at you could tell who died. Hole had to be big enough for, for your fist. Women had to tear holes as well, but they were allowed to wear their clothes backwards for obvious reasons. Now, you, you had to leave the hole open for seven days. And after that, you were allowed to sew it up, but not neatly. It had to be sewn with big stitches and be very sloppy so everyone would know and everyone would remember. In addition to tearing your clothes, the next thing you did was to hire hire mourners, professional wailers, and musicians. In fact, there were even rules about this. The musicians, which were usually flutists or flautists, were supposed to play loud, disconcerting tunes to reflect the mood of grief. And it did not matter how poor you were, every funeral had to have at least two fluting flautists, one wailing woman, and a partridge in a... No, no, not that one. When you hired the whaler, you would feel, usually a woman, you would fill her in with the family's history, even though if she likely knew because you probably hired her for the last one, for the, for the last year or two, and she could make her grief even, make your grief even greater. Oh, last year it was Charlie, and this year it's my little 12-year-old girl. This is what's going on. This is a synagogue ruler. He's wealthy. Probably lots of whalers and musicians there that day. Lots of people there to make a noisy disorder. And Jairus and Jesus walk up. The whales get louder. After all, this is the guy signing the paycheck. And somehow, above all of the noise, Jesus gets their attention. And he says, get out of here. This girl's not dead. She's just sleeping. And what are these professional wailers do, from, from mourning to mocking, their cries turn to laughter. You see, theirs was not true grief. They're just on the, they're, they're just being paid. And so it didn't take long for them to begin mocking. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. We're professionals. We know this girl is dead. Now, by the way, let me just take a little aside. Some commentators suggest that Jesus uh, was saying, listen, the, the girl's not dead. She's just sleeping. And so, especially in the time of the Enlightenment, 1800s, for example, uh, this isn't a story of resurrection, but a deliverance from premature burial. Uh, don't bury this girl. She's still alive. That is not, that is not the overall tenor of the accounts in all three synoptic gospels. It is clear this girl is dead. Sleep was a euphemism for sleep. And Jesus was saying, I am going to awaken her from eternal death. He throws the mourners out, taking only mom and dad and Peter and James and John with him. He walks over to where the little girl is lying, takes her by the hand. Stop right there. He takes her by the hand. The child is dead. You're not supposed to touch dead bodies. It makes you unclean. But that never seemed to bother Jesus. Whether it was a leper 
or a woman with an issue of blood, that's next week, or a dead little girl, everybody and everything he touched, he cleansed. Rather than making him unclean, he made them clean. He breathed life into death. He touched people. I want you to get this. He touched people when, every, when no one else would. He both touched and was touched by the untouchable. That's our Savior. He's our gentle healer, touching the wounds of our lives physically, emotionally, spiritually, when everyone else stays away. He took this little girl by the hand and said these words, Talitha kum. It's Aramaic. It literally means little lamb. It was a term of endearment. Little girl, arise. She was She was dead. And just like he had the power to deal with sin, he also had the power to deal with what sin drug in with it. Namely, he had power over disease. He had power over demons. He had power over the storms of life. And he had power even over death. Talitha Kum, little girl, arise. And she stood up. I would have you see Jesus. What, what does this mean for us today? Jesus was demonstrating his power over death. And his ability to raise this little girl from the dead is just, just a little picture of his own resurrection. And his, her resurrection pointed to his resurrection, and his resurrection points to our resurrection. You see, he becomes the first fruits. You see, she was not the first fruits. She was raised, yes, she was raised to life, but she died again. He was raised never to die again, just like you, 1 Corinthians 15. Because he lives, we too one day will live. Talitha kum. Little girl, arise. We're going to hear those words one day. I want you to memorize those words. Until then, we live in the not yet part of the kingdom. We remember that. We still have to deal with sin. We still have to deal with what sin drug in with it. We still face sickness. We still face death. But for believers, death is not facing an uncertain tomorrow. It is facing the reality of Jesus' claim, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. You believe that? And there's coming a day in the fullness of the kingdom when there will be no sin. There will be no sickness. There will be no death. John, the one who was in the room that day with Jesus writes in Revelation chapter 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or, or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Hallelujah. Every miracle He does points to the its ultimate fulfillment in the kingdom. When he heals the leper, he says, in the kingdom there will be no disease. When he drives out demons, he says, in the kingdom there will be no demons. When he forgives sins, as he did the paralytic, he says, in the kingdom there will be no sin. And when he, rises, when he raises little girls, he says, in the kingdom there will be no death. You see, in 1 John chapter 3, we read that Jesus appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And the last enemy to be destroyed, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, is death. 
He proved it every time he raised someone from the dead. Every time he said, Talitha kum, little girl, arise. He proved it when he himself was raised from the dead. I would have you see Jesus. The next verse goes on uh, in Hebrews 2, goes on to say, having rendered powerless him who had power over death, that is the devil, he did that so he might free those, that's us, who through fear of death were subject to slavery. Our fear of death put us in slavery all of our lives. No longer. We don't have to fear death anymore. It has been defeated. Talitha kum, arise, little girl. She got up at his command and began to walk, evidence of her healing. We're told she was 12 years old. I mean, she's not an infant. She's old enough to walk. And they were completely astounded, astonished with great astonishment. Who is this man? His name is Jesus. He gave strict orders. No one should know about this. The Messianic secret, you see, is now firmly back in place as they were back in Jewish territory. He would not be forced into Messianic expectations before his time. Of course, many knew that this girl had died. They're going to see her out on the playground. News would spread, exactly. Finally, Jesus says, give her something to eat. Further evidence of her full healing. She had been sick unto death no doubt she was hungry, needed nourishment to restore her strength. Give her a sandwich. I want you to think about that, even that. Sometimes, especially here, funerals will end in meals for the family, <laughs> but not for the deceased unless Jesus crashes your funeral. So while funerals aren't really what we would call fun, I am suggesting that they can be joy-filled. I'm not talking flippant happiness. I'm talking deep-seated joy. Because we understand as followers of Jesus Christ that death is never the end of the story. And so they can be celebrations for those of us who know Jesus, for those who have believed in Him. Because you see, there is coming a day when all who are in the grave will hear His voice and get up, and they will rise to meet him, Talitha Kum. Arise, little girl. Arise, little boy. I would have you see Jesus. This is, this is the, me the meaning of this miracle of resurrection. No, funerals are not fun, but the funeral of a believer can bring hope and joy and comfort because Jesus is forever the ultimate funeral basher. Let's pray.